Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm your host, Chase Krauss. Let's dive in. What is up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles. And that intro is kind of a lie now because I am a co-host. Because if you weren't here last week, if you didn't tune in last week, uh, Mr. Ryan Pollock is now a co-host of Catholics with Bibles. Ryan, how you doing, brother? How's it going, friends? I'm ready to talk about the Bible. I'm ready to talk about Catholics and the Bible. Uh, put me in, Coach. Here I am. Put me in. So if you're asking, why does Ryan sound like he's not in the room? It's because he's not. Um, Ryan, what's going on, my dude? Uh, you know, uh, I, the uh, the plague has come to uh, to our house, brother. Um we have the virus. My, my wife has the virus du jour, and uh, baby and I are hunkered down, hoping we don't get it too. But I'm working. That means I'm working from home for the uh, foreseeable future. Well, I guess not foreseeable future, but next week or two until I get a negative test myself. Man, it's coming for everybody. This this Delta has been a little bit crazy. But uh, your wife's doing okay. They're like nothing too serious. Uh, she can't smell or taste anything, so that means that she won't suffer from my cooking. I suppose um, there's always <laughs> a silver, always a silver lining there. You know, Delta is making me think of Delta Force with uh, Chuck Norris. Heyo, good old Chuck. And maybe, boy. Uh, maybe that's what we've gotten ourselves into as a planet these days. <laughs> yeah, I felt. I mean, so my I had COVID back in early January, and uh, I got te- I tested positive. Uh, two days after my son was born, Eli was born. And so, and I I felt like awful before vaccines and it was just, I felt really, really bad for about three or four days. And so I had to, we had to get home though. And so I was like masked up in the car with my postpartum, two day postpartum wife and our newborn. And I had to like quarantine upstairs in our house for like a week. And like, because I had COVID, we didn't know if Viva had it or not. So we couldn't just like have people over like cooking us food and stuff, like, cause they couldn't come inside our house. And so like my poor wife was such a trooper and she had to like take care of this newborn by herself for like the first like week and, uh, had to like cook me food. Now, fortunately we had a lot of families who like dropped off food or like ordered in food and whatever, but like, you know, in an ideal world, like our first baby, like she just like didn't move for the first week, right? She was just recovering, resting, only moving when she had to. But this time around, yep. I was trapped upstairs. I felt like death and it was just, it was rough. But I'm glad Jess is feeling okay. Nothing too crazy. She can now eat more, yeah, eat yeah. more veggies willingly now that even though she can't taste anything. <laughs> yeah. I was said, I said like, why don't you just eat like spinach and hard boiled eggs? You know, like just every. <laughs> Next two weeks. <laughs> That's what I would do. That's right. Oh, man. Uh, well, uh, as always, if you're just tuning in, um, you don't know this, but if you tune in for the millionth time, you know we always start with the Greek or Hebrew word of the bay, day, to, word of the bay, word of the day to the best of our abilities. So um, I couldn't think of one, but Mr. Ryan did think of one today. So, Ryan, what do you got? Uh, let's do pater, which is Greek for father. Pater uh, Imon, right? The uh, the Our Father in Greek. Uh, it's actually the same in Latin. So Pater Noster. Uh, you might you might remember that from some Latin classes you were forced to learn from a nun or something like that. I, I don't know. Now that I think about it, I don't don't know much about your uh, middle school education. But um, 
Yeah. Uh, I, I took zero Latin as a kid. So if that just helps you out at all. <laughs> I'm learning it now uh, via Duolingo. So there's a little commercial there for Duolingo. That's the, that's the real deal. Hey, Duolingo, if you want to sponsor the show, go for it. Um, <laughs> We're, we are ready for you, Duolingo. Come on down. That's right. Um, well, cool. So uh, if you weren't here last week, we briefly mentioned it. Um, this uh, is, starts the first week of Brian and I's doing a little mini, mini study on this book called The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible by a, a non-denominational guy named Michael Heiser. Is that how you say his name, Ryan? Heiser? Mike, so. Michael yeah, he is the, uh, let's see, he got his PhD in Hebrew Bible and Semitic languages from Madison, University of Madison, Wisconsin, and uh, he worked at um, Logos Bible Software, which is a pretty popular Bible study tool uh, these days. Probably, if you had to, if you ask my humble opinion. But say, I use it all the time. So, also, Lagos, if you want to uh, sponsor us, go for it. Uh, dropping a lot of shameless plugs today. Um, but, uh, but, but in all seriousness, like, so I got Lagos or like the Catholic version is like verbum. So like Lagos verbum or whatever. Oh. Um, yeah. So there's like a Catholic version of it. Um, same company, but just like a bunch of Catholic books um, instead of other books. Um, and, uh, I got it when I was an undergrad and I mean, I really don't think I've never seen a better Bible study software than Lagos. I think it's arguably the best. Great. Yeah. Um, it's uh well, especially too, because it's like, I mean, just if you want to, if if you're listening to this, and if you've ever like given like a talk or like prepped a talk or anything, or just wanted to study a topic more in depthly, like there's a topic guide on there where you can literally go to like the search bar, type in the word like faith, and it, the the software comes with like a couple hundred like free books, like Catholic resources and just everything from church fathers to like the catechism to everything in between. And uh, if you type in the word faith, it'll pull, it's kind of like Google for the Bible. And so it'll pull up every like church father quote, Thomas Aquinas quote, place in scripture, uh, like everything about just, just faith in general, topic guides, all these things. Um, and so as an undergrad theology student, this made my life much easier because it auto-populated all my quotes for me. So I didn't have to search for them. I just copy and pasted. Um, <laughs> but, uh, anyway, that's cool. Um, so yeah, so this book, um, it, it's, it, Ryan and I, we, we, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's some buzz going around about the book. So Ryan and I was like, why not? Let's just, let's just get it and start reading it. And then we can kind of talk about, you know, the pros and cons, um, because this is a non-Catholic uh, theologian. Um, so his perspective is a little bit different. But, um, you know, one of the things that I think I said last week, too, is that um, we shouldn't ever be afraid to read non-Catholic material as long as we feel like we have a well-formed conscience and intellectual formation in the Catholic faith first. That's what I would say. Um, you know, one of those things where I wouldn't, Ryan, I don't know what your opinion on this, but I usually wouldn't recommend, you know, let's say undergrads, like freshman, sophomore year, reading a bunch of different interpretations of, of something like you kind of get, you need to get grounded in like one thing in order to, before you can kind of then look at everything else and compare and contrast to a certain degree. And if you've never, never had formal education, then I would say like, just know your Catholic stuff really well before you start diving into to other stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, uh, you know, you want to ask your priest too, especially if there's something that you don't understand. Um, he is your, He's your resident biblical scholar, right? And uh, if he doesn't know, he's, he has resources to look it up, right? He has the, the time and the energy to do 
that sort of thing. So uh, I hope I'm not committing any priests out there to any work that they don't have time for. <laughs> but uh, uh, there's, uh, there's just a wealth of resources available to you. There's never been an easier time to study the Bible than, uh, than the one that we have right now, than the one that we're living in right now. I think that's pretty clearly the case. So, uh, but, but, of course, that also means that there's a plethora of resources, just a million and a jillion and a half ways to study the Bible. So uh, that's to say we, we could use some help sometimes. So um, get all the resources you want, but also, like Chase was saying, have a good foundation and have somebody you can turn to when what you're looking at just doesn't quite make sense to you. Totally. So we're just going to dive in here with um, the chapters are relatively short in this book so far, and they might get longer later on. But the, the, the book is set up into seven different sections. And so we're just going to do this like a seven part series. There's seven sections. We're going to have seven episodes on each section. Um, and so uh, there's yeah two or three chapters in this first section, um, I guess two, including the intro, right? Um, or the preface or whatever. Um, and then uh, so Ryan, I don't know. So would you should we, I guess we should lay a foundation of the purpose of this book and like what the author's going for. Yeah. Give us a lowdown. So it's called The Unseen Realm, and the subtitle is Recovering the Supernatural uh, Worldview of the Bible. So the idea is that as, as modern American readers today, we're just so accustomed to um, distrusting or disbelieving someone or even the Bible when they attest to uh, supernatural, immaterial, unseen events happening. Like, our first inclination is always to go, hmm, well, uh, maybe that person just needs therapy. Or maybe they just, like, stayed up all night drinking and they saw a ghost and it wasn't really a ghost, you know what I mean? Like, we're always looking for some sort of rational scientific explanation for uh, paranormal activity. And uh, his point in the book is to say that the Bible lives in a totally different world than that. The Bible lives in a world where magic and mysticism and curses and angels and demons and stuff are just, uh, that's just right all on the other side of the, the curtain here between this world and the next. And often that curtain is breached. So to the extent that uh, he wants to draw that out for us in biblical studies, I think it's great. He says the book was born of him uh, being alerted to Psalm 82. So we're not going to read Psalm 82 for you. Pause the episode here and go look it up. But Psalm 82 is all about uh, the God of Israel taking counsel with a sort of mini pantheon of other gods, sitting in judgment in the council of other gods. Now, if you know your Hebrew Bible, if you know your uh, Bible as a whole, you know that the gods of the nations are but idols. For us, there is only one God. And yet at the same time, there's this sense that there are other powers in heaven and in the unseen realms that, um, you know, can serve as advisors for the Lord God, the one God, or as antagonists. So, um, he talks about uh, that moment of him seeing Psalm 82 for the first time as one that really shook up his biblical studies paradigm, and he wasn't the same after that. So, Chase, the question, I think the first question I wanted to pose to you is, did you, have you ever had a moment like that before where you just come across some part of the Bible and you're like, oh man, I didn't know that was in there, and I can't read anything the same way <laughs> after knowing this? So, so I guess there, there's two moments, I guess, that... Um were kind of my eye-opening moments of reading scripture. The first one was actually, so I had my reversion to the faith in June of 2012. Um, and at, a couple months later, I found myself as a missionary with this organization called Net Ministries. And so I was actually in formation. We, we had two months of training with Net, um, two months of formation before we were allowed to like go and like, you know, give, give retreats and save souls and whatnot. Um, but there was one moment where, 
you know, I was doing my personal prayers, just reading, reading, reading the Bible. And I, and I can't remember the exact text. There's something in, I think, the Gospel of Matthew. It was one of the parables of, like, the kingdom or something like that. And um, I was reading it, and I had no idea what it meant, right? I just had no idea. I was just like, I genuinely, like, I don't know what this is saying. Like, I don't know how to pray with this because I don't know what it means. And I remember, like, at the time, I was a fresh baby, like, revert. So, like, assuming everybody else there just knew more than I did, and they probably did. And I remember, like, going up to, like, a table at lunch. Like, I was sitting at lunch and asking like all the other young adults and like the, the missionary staff, like, Hey, like, what does this passage mean? Like, do you guys know? And, and they all kind of just give me like deer in the headlight stares. And I'm like, so you, does nobody know? Somebody has to know what this means. Right. And, um, and I remember that was like my yep. first kind of moment of like, f- I felt hunger to know what scripture meant. Right. And then the second moment was a couple years later. Uh, well, actually just about a year later, I was at a biblical studies conference um, and the main speakers were, you know, Dr. Scott Hahn, Dr. Michael Barber and Dr. John Bergsma. So like some heavy hitters in the Ratzingerian method C interpretation of scripture. And it was a, it was Michael, uh, Dr. Michael Barber's talk, who was later one of my, my mentors at JP Catholic. And, um, he was, I think he was giving a talk on like, um, New Testament in general. And it was a moment of talking about, uh, when Joseph, um, found out Mary was pregnant, right? Um, and uh, he was he was breaking down how Aquinas read that, and um, you know we all know that he tried to divorce Mary quietly, and it was that moment when he said, um, you know, it's one of those things like, like why did he want to divorce Mary, right? And you know the easy go to answer is always, um, well he was mad or he was upset in some way because he you know he thought she you know, cheated on him and it took to, for, to God, you know, coming in or the angel saying like, don't be afraid. Um, you know, this born was, this baby is born of God, all these things. And Joseph's like, oh, okay, well, I guess then I'll take her back. And, and Dr. Barber was just like, but if you actually read the text and if you read the text with Aquinas, um, he was a righteous man. That's how he's described as a righteous man. Joseph was a righteous man. If he was truly a righteous man in the, in the sense of the Old Testament, he would have stoned Mary to death or at least, you know, get turned her over to the elders because that's what the Old Testament law required of somebody accused of adultery, right? If you're accused of adultery, if a woman was accused of adultery, you know, hand it over to the elders. Obviously she's pregnant, so it wouldn't exactly take two witnesses. It would just need the, the husband to be like, that's not my baby. Um, and she wasn't even married by that point, right? And Mary would have been killed. Like that's what a righteous man in the light of the Old Testament would have done. And we're Dr. Barber kind of just breaking down how Aquinas was like, no, like he was a righteous man. And the reason he wanted to divorce Mary is because he saw himself as unworthy to be somebody who would walk with this holy woman kind of thing. He knew Mary for who she was. She, and he knew her righteousness and her love for God. Um, and he went into like, wow. he kind of built a syllogism better than I just did kind of thing, you know, pulling on Aquinas and stuff. And that was kind of the moment. You know, I was just like, wait, what? Like, I was like, and you just, I just saw how, how Barbara kind of just broke it down step by step and built this great syllogism. And that was the first moment where I was just like, no, like there is like, like the Bible should be studied. It should be dove more into like, like my, my frustration of not understanding some parables and some passages was almost not justified, but like, I was like, there's hope. And like, and actually it was from that conference. And I actually talked to Dr. Barbara afterwards. Literally the reason I ended up going to JP Catholic, studying under him, doing my master's there, because I was just like, I, you know, obviously there's still parts of the, the Bible where like, maybe I don't understand completely, or there's certain passages that are kind of vague that could be taken in a few different ways. Um, but uh, it's one of those things where now I'm like, okay, now I'm equipped to study scripture well, right? Did you have a moment? 
Yeah, I was I was thinking about that question this uh, afternoon, and I thought I actually thought of six moments. But, six um, moments. For the sake of time, <laughs> uh, I'll just show you. I'll just talk about one little paradigm shift here that I had where um, this was particularly in the area of like the scripture itself and thinking about what scripture is. So when you first start to study um, the Bible at a at a more academic level you're going to get uh, introduced to this thing called the historical critical method. And I'm, of course, I'm sure that you've um, told our audience about this countless times. Yeah. But the idea is that you are, it, the way that the schools of thought typically go is they say, we ought to strip away, and Heiser's going to do this a lot in the book, we ought to strip away any preconceived notions about what we think the Bible means, whatever our traditions or our denominations say, just dive into the text as historians and see what comes up about it. So you practice that for a few years, and uh, you, you try your best to do it in the papers that you write and things like that. Um, and you have professors telling you over and over again, the Bible was not written to you, right? It was written to people who lived thousands of years ago who are not who are now dead. They lived in a totally different world, and they're trying to make the Bible alien for you, right? Um, but then you just realize that while the Scripture um, was not written to you directly, it was written for the Church, um, that mystical body of Christ extended throughout space and time, of which you're now a member, right? So that, well, like, that's just, a t- I mean, that opens up so many different avenues for figural reading, for intertextuality, um, for ecclesiology even. Um, that's, that was just huge for me to make that, to make that shift. So um, we can get to my other five another time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, so, but, uh, so like, yeah, so you kind of alluded to it. So Heiser, um like we mentioned before, he's not Catholic. He's at non-denominational, right? Even evangelical. Um, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. He's evangelical. And so, yep. um, you know, throughout the book, he, he is chapter two. He talks about his rules of engagement. Right. And so one of, uh, and so Ryan and I were chatting before the show, um, you and I were chatting before the show, obviously. And so, uh, one of the things is, um, you know, there's some of his rules, I'm not a huge fan of, and there's some of them that I'm just like, my, I guess my biggest critique so far is that he talks like, he has discovered something really cool and unique when you just mentioned it, it is that he's just really laying down uh, some historical critical methods um, <laughs> um, and with different types of and different tools of interpretation and the tools aren't bad. Right. So for like one of them, the first thing he says is he, he reads the Bible like a mosaic. Right. Um, and he, he's reading it. He doesn't want to read it through a filter. He doesn't want to read it through the filter of, you know, his, his upbringing or his creeds, that's the word he used. Um, and he's trying to, you know, read it, at, you know, in Zitz at Leben, right? In the, in, the, in, the, in the times it was written, right? It's a German phrase for at the times it was written. Um, and it, he just, he talks about like, I, you know, I'm doing this for the first time. And, and I guess in, in his community, this is kind of in, innovative stuff. And you know more about that than me. So I guess, why does he talk like this is such a new big thing? Well, because if, if your denomination started somewhere in America around the time of the Great Awakenings, right, if your theology uh, comes out of the sort of, like, Billy Graham, Great Awakening, revivalist kind of a movement, uh, the Bible is really—I mean, obviously it's God's inspired Word, but it's God's love letter to you, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's about you finding personal spiritual uh, meaning and fulfillment in your own life, and so— um, you know, you're encouraged to uh, read the parables of Jesus and stick your name in there where it says a man or a woman or whatever. Uh, so for somebody who grew up in that school of thought where the Bible is, of course, God's Word, but it's 
to you particularly, um, something like this can be a really big game changer where you're like, wow, uh, the Bible wasn't written to me. Again, keeping in mind the distinction we made just a few minutes ago, sure. it was primarily its first audience. Let's put it that way. Its first audience lived thousands of years ago, um, and their assumptions uh, about theology and their expectations from the Lord were much different than mine. Um, like, just sit with that and wrestle with it. So, um, to be charitable to him, I think that uh, I think for him and his community, that kind of realization is is massive. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, and, then, and and that's why I think it's it's uh, I think it's gonna be cool to journey through this book um, as you know, two men from a Catholic theological worldview, right? Um, like, and even our intellectual formation, even though your intellectual intellectual formation originally wasn't Catholic, right? Um, you eventually got there. Um, whereas basically all of my intellectual formation is from a Catholic perspective. Now we studied non-Catholics throughout my master's. We studied atheists. I studied Nietzsche, right? You study all these people, but I didn't study any of those, like I said, until my Catholic foundation was pretty solid, right? So I have a very Catholic worldview um, <laughs> and a very Catholic uh, hermeneutic uh, that is very Ratzingerian. It's me and Ratzinger. Ratzinger, my boy, right? Um, but anyway, so he, 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 in chapter two, um, he talks about his rules of engagement. He lists um, three, you know, basically, uh, you know, objections or rules or whatever um, that he's, he's going to be using kind of as a foundation to, to read the passages we're going to be diving into. Um, so the first one was, you know, we've been trained to think that history of Christianity is the true context of the Bible. Um, and so I guess, where is that coming from? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, and this is, the, so we were talking about this a little bit before the show. This is one of the sections that I really have trouble with, because uh, for him, what he means by tradition is basically custom. Now, in Catholic theology, we have this little handy distinction that we make between capital T traditions and lowercase t traditions. And by lowercase uh, t traditions, we basically mean customs, like things that are particular in this or that part of, of the Church uh, as it's expressed globally. So um, what's, a good, what's a good example of this? Like, uh, can you think of something off the top of your head that uh, illustrates this well? Holding hands during the Our Father. Sure, right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, great example. So, so that's a custom um, of something you might see in the Novus Ordo, but uh, Catholics across the globe do not do that, and it's not as if this came down in any sort of magisterial document, nor is it in the Bible, right? So it's the difference between a custom and a capital T tradition. Uh, but for Heiser and for evangelicals like him, any teaching, even the creeds or the formulations of the councils themselves, belong to that lower T tradition, belong to customs. So at best, they serve as summaries of what the Bible says, and at worst, they serve as um, unhelpful blinders that we put on that prevent us from engaging fully with the biblical text. Um, so uh, one big disagreement with him that we're going to have here is to say that, like, creeds are not summaries of the Bible. Right. Like, that's not their function. Um, nor are they summaries of theology or, like, statements. They're not Protestant statements of faith. Uh, creeds are the ends, they're the resolutions of specific theological disputes that the Church has had over time. Now, those evolve into, like, liturgical settings, and they evolve catechetically, um, but first and foremost, they they don't belong to this thing called lowercase uh, t tradition or custom. So we're going to come at, we're going to come back to that a couple of times. But there's a problem that I think we as Catholics have here with the method. So 
Imagine that you want to be a constitutional scholar, scholar of the U.S. Constitution, but you say, I'm only going to read the Constitution in its original context, and I'm not going to study the history of its implementation at all. I mean, you get laughed out of court. Um, pardon the, pardon the, the, I guess, the pun there. <laughs> but uh, it, of course it's important to study these things in their original context. But the history of their interpretation um, is huge for understanding what they mean. So we're going we're gonna to quibble with them on that one, I think. Yeah. But the second one, I, I think I basically agree with. Um, the second of his uh, obstacles and protocols, he says, we've been desensitized to the vitality and theological importance of the unseen world. And I think, um, as I think the Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, I think we are less desensitized because of our sacramental worldview. But I think that that only yeah. applies if we actually have a sacramental worldview, because you and I both know there's tons of Catholics who are Catholic but do not have a sacramental worldview, right? So his, his big thing is like, you know, it's in non-Catholic circles or for him, evangelical circles, um, is, you know, everything is very rationalistic. It's very enlightenment driven. It's very, if it's, you know, if, oh, when you reason in the Bible, if it's miracle, you have to find some natural cause to it, right? Like Jesus didn't actually multiply the loaves and fish. He just inspired people to share kind of thing, right? Um, and yeah. so, and so I think, you know, I think, I mean, and I think that's right. I think it's something even as Catholics we could work on is, is, is reminding ourselves of the reality of there's a spiritual realm. Like there's angels, there's demons, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's miracles that happen, right? Well, and, and you wouldn't believe, I mean, maybe you probably would believe, the amount of time I wasted, for example, in like an Old Testament survey, uh, reading just page after page and commentary after commentary, trying to come up for some sort of natural scientific explanation for bread, for bread raining down from heaven. Oh my gosh, yeah. Or like, or like the, the, you know, how the, the, the Red Sea, they're trying to figure out the weather patterns to how it could have happened. When I'm yeah. like, dude, that's literally, it didn't even happen at the, what we call the Red Sea. It was like the Sea of Reeds. Like you're just so <laughs> dumb on so many levels. Like, so, you know, a side yeah. tangent, if anybody here watches the History Channel and any of the Bible shows, just like don't do it. It's like it's all garbage. It's all so bad. And I'm really sorry if you've been inspired by one of those shows in some way. But like just know that basically it's all just stuff that should be thrown out. <laughs> and, and the Lord can speak to us through errant means, right? And so if, if, the, uh, if the History Channel sort of reignited your faith as a Catholic, like praise God for that. Um, but now it's time to grow up. Yeah, like, now right. it's time to move on to better things. So, um, yeah, but he, he's, he's arguing against this, and he, he helpfully casts it in terms of two schools of thought in his context. So there are people that um, ignore the unseen realm or the supernatural because they're too rationalist, right? Mm -hmm. They look for natural experts for everything. Um, or there's also people who are, uh, I guess, too charismatic or too Pentecostal who, like, whatever experience that they have in their life, uh, especially if it's spiritual, like they just sort of take whatever their first gut feeling about it is as, as the gospel without trying to compare it to the words of the church or the biblical text or anything like that. Right. And I think we even see that within the Catholic church too. Like we have our, our hyper charismatics and our, um, and people who are probably, yeah, way too logical, um, and too, and, and just don't even think about it. I remember I had a conversation, this girl I dated my senior year of high school, she was non-denominational. And I remember I was very confused because at the time I wasn't super Catholic. Like I said, my reversion happened, you know, later um, after my first year of college. And, um, but I don't know how this conversation got brought up, but it did. And she had, she said like, oh yeah, I don't believe in, in demons. And I'm like, what do you, 
what do you mean you don't believe in, in demons? Like it's it's in the Bible. And she's like, Oh yeah, but that, that existed in, in like in Jesus's day. I'm like, but like in the book of Acts, like they they performed exorcisms. Like she's like, Yeah, I just don't believe it happens anymore. And I'm like, huh. Like I didn't know what to say at the time. I just thought I was I was confused. Um, but even within Catholic circles, like I you and I probably both met people, I've met people who hyper spiritualize everything, right? Um, and and the in the sense of like, um, you know, there's people who who genuinely might have the gifts of like uh um the uh, interpretation of spirits or is it, is that the right term? Um, the, where they're able to like pray like and, and, and kind of sense like evil, an evil presence or a good presence kind of thing. Um, and I think that's a valid charismatic gift, but I think I've also seen people who think they have that gift and then they walk into a room and like, I'm getting, I'm getting evil presence spirits right now. And I'm like, dude, calm down. Like we're, like you're probably like, you think you're, you're essentially just getting bad vibes, but you know, uh, it, it might not be spiritual. We're, we're- we're, hey man, we're just in the Whole Foods uh, incense aisle right now. That's all that's happening. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah, so I think I think you know it's 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 and I do appreciate his two distinctions. And I think you know as as Catholics we can say it's like yeah we acknowledge the spiritual. We also don't over spiritualize everything. We acknowledge that everything is in either God's actual will or permissive will. We acknowledge there's spiritual warfare going on that we should take seriously. But at the same time, not every bad thing that happens to you is because Satan is attacking you, right? Um, like that's not how it works. There's this, there's this uh, terrific meme. You may have, we're Facebook friends, so you may have seen me post it not not long ago. But uh, it's a meme of Elmo from Sesame Street, and on one side there's like all these healthy fruits. Elmo's sitting at a table, and on one side of the table there's all these healthy fruits and vegetables labeled like scripture and tradition and catechism and magisterium, and on the other side there's just a giant pile of sugar, but like it kind of looks like drugs or something like that, and it just says the random diary of an 18th century apocalyptic mystic. And Elmo just like dives his head right <laughs> into the pile of, of sugar, um, which is great. So like as Catholics, we ought not to be high and mighty about this. We're not immune to Like we're very much not immune to either of the errant schools of thought that he here uh, is trying to skewer here. Like we, we too are, are tempted to become either too rationalistic about the scriptures or just over-spiritualize everything where every, Every bump in the night that you hear is a demon trying to drag you down into into the pits of hell. You know? That's right. And then his last one is we assume that a lot of things in the Bible are too odd or peripheral to matter, right? And he does list a ton of scripture passages. Um, some like have been like hashed out by like Catholic theologians or like fathers of the church, which are kind of funny. I'm like, you just need more resources, bro. Like we've hashed this stuff out. Um, but some of them are just kind of weird. And so like, for example... Um, you know, I think he mentions like the Nephilim, right. Or like, uh, the sons of God in Genesis six, but Aquinas kind of already hashed that out, um, as he gives some options. Um, but his basic point is there are a lot of on the surface kind of vague or weird or odd verses in the old and new Testament. Like we just have to acknowledge that as, as a reality. Um, and, but it doesn't mean there and to his point it doesn't mean that we can't find a deeper meaning or the other literal sense of this right and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't just not think about it right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah he says he has a great little rubric here for reading the scriptures and basically says if it's weird it's important <laughs> like if you if you find something in the bible that makes you go what the blankety blank is going on here like that's good like pay attention that's yeah. that's uh it might be the lord trying to get your attention for some reason or another, especially if you just have no idea what it means, right? Pay yeah. attention. Well, that's something I tell like uh, a bunch of people, especially the any youth I work with, is like if you have any questions, 
it's like, that's awesome because that's God's invitation to you to dive deeper, right? To, to, to do your research, to like to roll up your sleeves and, and, you know, and, and, and pursue truth, right? Because if you care about truth, you should pursue it. And, and it's literally how Aquinas wrote, like he asked a question and to Aquinas' credit, his objections that he would list after the questions are like really good arguments against his, his point, right? He, he did his best to find the best arguments against his point. So the church is not afraid of questions, right? Um, so I think that sets us up pretty, pretty well into, you know, kind of exploring this book further. Um, any, any last closing thoughts about, you know, anything we were talking about before we, we wrap it up here? Uh, let's see. I, 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 I want to make this prediction again. I want to make it quite clear. I think we're going to agree with a lot of his conclusions though not his methods. I think that his methods need to be a bit Catholicized, which is what we're here for. That's right. Um, and so, which makes sense because uh, he's not Catholic. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, as it happens, that's, that's what we might expect. So, yeah. um, right on. Very cool. Very cool. Well, as always, everybody, thank you so much for joining us this week on Catholics with Bibles. My name is Chase. I'm Ryan. And thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week. God bless y'all. Alrighty, y'all. Once again, we are going over The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible, a book by Michael Heiser. And it's going to be interesting, y'all. Um, if you want to read it, like you can, but I would read along with us, especially so you can maybe see some of the errors or some of the ways where like he's not thinking like super Catholic. Or if you don't want to read it, just listen to what we have to say about it. We'll tell you basically talk about the whole book. And join us next week on the second part of this mini series on the unseen realm. And we'll see you next time on Catholics with Bibles. God bless guys.